I'm Alex Shaw. I'm Sharon Shaw. And, and welcome, welcome to, to School of Movies. <laughs> Catch me if you can. Welcome to Miami Mutual Bank. How may I help you? I'd like to cash this check here and then and I'd like to take you out for a steak dinner. <laughs> Are you really Frank never went to flight school. The jump seat is open. It's been a while since I've done this. Which one's the jump seat again? Frank never went to medical school. evidence that the defendant is lying. Frank never went to law school. Special Agent Hanratty, FBI. Because Frank is still in high school. It's like Vegas. The house always wins. Some nuts flying around the country posing as a pilot. Call him the James Bond of the sky. Hello, pusher. This is by far the best date I have ever been on. He's a kid. That's why he doesn't have a record. 30 milligrams of codeine every four hours. Do you concur? I concur. Dr. Harris. Yes? Do you concur? Concur with what, sir? <laughs> Ma'am, I'm sorry to have to tell you, your son is fudging checks. I have a payroll check here I'd like to cash. I'm working part-time at the church now. Just tell me how much yours and I'll pay you back. $1.3 million. I'll be choosing eight young ladies to be a part of Pan Am's future stewardess program. South America, Australia, Singapore. These are so perfect, the bankers even know the difference. What do you want? To apologize. You didn't call to apologize, did you? You have no one else to call. I'm looking for your son. I would never give up my son. If you were a father, you'd know. Stop chasing me. I can't stop. It's my job. Based on a true story. You see these people staring at you? They keep peeking over their shoulders, wondering where you're going tonight. Where you going, Frank? Don't tell me not to fly, I've simply got to. If someone takes a spill, it's me and not you. Don't bring around a cloud of terrain on my parade. Sir, we're going to let him get away. No, Carl, you let him get away. Nobody had a better brain on my Merry Christmas! Parade. I'm getting close, huh? You will go to prison. You're going to have to catch me. If you can. Catch Me If You Can, the 2002 biographical crime film. Uh, this is an unusual one for Spielberg. He hasn't done really a film like this before or since. Uh, the I think tonally there are some links to Bridge of Spies, or that could just be Tom Hanks in period clothing dealing with espionage. But honestly, the film this kind of reminds me most of in in some capacity, and and always did because they came out at about the same time, is Down with Love. Do you remember that one? Yes. Completely yeah. different films. One of them is like a, an impromptu musical, and uh, you know, very camp and 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 completely different in tone. This one is uh, a film about a, a lost boy. A young man who kind of defrauds his way through life looking for something that we'll talk about in a bit. But both of them seem to cash in on the aesthetic of the golden age of air travel. It's very important for both of them. It was the 60s and everyone was just in love with the idea that you could get on a plane and go anywhere in the world. And it was, you know... 
several decades after World War II, so people weren't shit poor anymore. They'd come back out of the Depression, and uh, since the 50s, America was in a boom time. And uh, there was the, uh, it was an, an age of prosperity and, and possibility, and the Vietnam War wasn't yet soured. Perceived prosperity and possibility. Indeed. With very little to interfere with that perception. Mm. If you go down a different street, you find the shape of water. Just in terms of um, what kind of people could have fallen through the cracks. Skid Row is off to one side as well with Little Ship of Horrors. Mm. It's, uh, it's a kind time to certain people and a very unkind time to others. Hence the turnabout and counterculture of hippies who are going to be who are completely absent from the film but are going to be uh, discontent with America by the end of the decade and it follows a, a, a many many years I think does um, Hanks uh, Hanks's handwriting say he's been chasing William for, uh, sorry Frank for 11 years. Um, or that, that he started 11 years ago. He's caught in Montrachard in 1969 mm-hmm. when it cuts to the opening scene at the Rotary Club. It says six years earlier. 63, yeah. Yeah. And by the end of the movie, it's like 74. Yeah. So, yeah. so it's, it's over a long time. And this was the swan song of young, thin innocent looking wouldn't hurt a fly ladies man but at the same time sensitive sweet natured boyish blue eyed Leo DiCaprio and it came out five days after Leo DiCaprio was delivered to the world in Gangs of New York in the guise and form that he would maintain from then on uh, as in more dangerous, more edgy, more stocky, more able to beat men up, um, and more willing to do so as well. You know, a, a dangerous, savage animal wrapped in a business suit, and uh, you know, with the the aviator uh, afterwards, and, uh, and and the Departed, and then Wolf of Wall Street. He became kind of endorsed by Martin Scorsese as a man's man, a manly man, a man about, about town, town. A, a criminal, or uh, not someone necessarily that you would actually want to be around because he could, um, you know, potentially lead to your downfall. He had crossed a Rubicon away from the man who was hated by so many men for being in Titanic. And we'll talk about that when we tackle Titanic. But DiCaprio was not loved by men. And by Christmas 2002, suddenly the men were having mixed feelings about him as he battled, barefist, Bill the Butcher for control of Five Points New York. And then when he was being directed by Inyaturu and he gobbled down a bison liver like a stack of Pop-Tarts, that's when the Academy sat up and took notice. You were going to drink the fat. <laughs> Let's see what else he'll do. <laughs> I just found it, find it um, fascinating. I'm not going to use the word interesting. Uh, of uh, where, where and when male endorsements can be delivered. And uh, you suggested that uh, men can be heartthrobs or they can be respected actors. Oh, yeah, I forgot about Christopher Nolan as well. They can be heartthrobs or respected actors, but they can't be both. They think they can be heartthrobs or respected actors, but they can't be both. It is possible to be both, Mm. but there's there's a point where a lot of actors who were... Um, 
to an extent, yes, probably typecast as being sort of young and fresh-faced, and and I I completely get that his um, his feelings about his career were probably hitting a point where he wanted meatier roles and he wasn't being offered them. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I uh, compared him to Brad Pitt, uh, who he was just sort of following on the uh, coattails of, uh, and uh, and who Brad Pitt was following in the coattails of Tom Cruise, uh, in terms of massive pinup, like in every teenage girl's bedroom, mm-hmm. it went Cruise, Pitt, DiCaprio, sort of early nineties, mid nineties, late nineties, mm-hmm. and all three of them became respected actors when they did in Pitt's case I think it was 12 Monkeys and Fight Club these unromantic movies where he got to play a kind of a scumbag Mm, and have abs and have abs what was it for Cruz do you think because I joked it it was um, you said said far far and away away because he's a bare fist fighter there and he's Irish but that was still for the ladies and DiCaprio in this is very much pitched for the ladies I suppose, yeah, yes. there's, an, there's an element of that, yes. So seriously, dude bros watching this? It's unlikely. It, there, there, there isn't enough okay. for, for them. The difference that I see with it is... You, you get all the frat boys together, Dude, we're going to go see Catch Me If You Can! He feels very authentic in this, which is what kind of makes me think... That's so contradictory, considering who he plays. Doesn't it just... The for the ladies element kind of suggests a staged sincerity, which I I didn't get from him once when I wasn't supposed to. That's the thing about this role for him. He he fakes the fakery so well. And yet the moments of this is really him, this is really him, scared, lost, lonely. Shine through. You know right. when you know when you're seeing the truth. Yeah, absolutely. And contextually, that, because you know when he's when he has to lie to people. Yeah. And when there's no one around for him to lie to, so all you're getting is the truth. So you see that enough, and you know that when he does tell the truth to certain people, mm. I recognise this version of him. Yeah. And then if you compare that to his role in Wolf of Wall Street, where it's somebody who doesn't even know he's faking anymore, mm. it I know which one I'd rather spend time with. I suppose you could compare it to his departed co-star Matt Damon, who was also in Saving Private Ryan, uh, as uh, talented Mr. Ripley. But uh, Mr. Ripley was a prick from beginning to end, yeah. and um, I, I never warmed to him. Mm. Uh, there is a tragedy about the talented Mr. Ripley, but there's also a savagery. Mm. I think the, the difference with, um, you, you were saying about what was the role for Tom Cruise, Tom Cruise never went down the, um, the, the hard acting must be taken seriously by the boys Root. He went. Jack Reacher, Mission Impossible. Yes, no, 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 he no. did. No, not in the. No, not in I the nineties. No, but in the two thousands, most definitely. No, no, no. What I mean is not in the sense of I want really serious, meaty acting roles that will show everybody what a wood flat He went. He hung on to the heartthrob as long as he could, mm. and then he went. Now I'm an action dude. <laughs> It's, it's weird, it's, isn't it's it? It's still a want. I think you're right on the. It's still a wanting to be taken seriously by the men folk. Yeah. But it's a different road. I I might posit Kubrick. That that he was like, come on, honey, let's do a Kubrick film. It'll only help our relationship. <laughs> <laughs> oh my god, of course, yeah. <laughs> let's. 
let's do a Kubrick, you said. It'll help well, our relationship and our careers, you, you said. said. Oh, honey, let's join Scientology, you said. <laughs> uh, <clears throat> I'm taking the kids, Tom. <laughs> Oh, that's horrible. I know, it's horrible. It sounds like we're making fun of, of, a, of a, a shattered marriage. But ultimately, Scientology will do that and you could have backed out at any time, Tom. The, um, if, if he had a role that I think was an attempt at let's play a serious, um, multifaceted Magnolia? character. Uh, sort of, yes, but th- that was a small enough part that mm. I don't think he could really do much with it. Okay. Collateral. Yeah. That's when he, uh, actually for his auditions, uh, interestingly considering this film, dressed up like a delivery guy and then went and delivered a parcel, sat down with the person he was delivering it to, had a drink with them, and at no point did they realise it was Tom Cruise. Because he was just acting. But having done Collateral, Mm. did he then go on and do more roles like that? No, he did not. Are you asking, did Tom Cruise do uh, films where he had snowy white hair? No, he didn't. He went back to jet black. 70 years old, still with jet black hair, just like Jerry Lewis. Mm, I think he might have some issues with authenticity that are beyond the scope of this podcast. Anyway, catch me if you can. That's beside the point. We're not talking about Tom Cruise. We're talking about Leonardo. I've actually divided the film up into 11 sections. Uh, It sounds like I I didn't... I decided against taking it through a hero's journey. This is not a hero's journey. Mm. It's to do with the structure of the film that uh, Spielberg chose. And it takes us on a twisty pathway. Mm-hmm. And uh, if I ask you at each each turn, what Frank Abagnale Jr. is showing us at that point and what he's going through at each of these points. So um, the film starts near the end, uh, or at least near the, the collar. And uh, I realised halfway through, oh, this was so we could get Tom Hanks on screen way earlier, because otherwise he wouldn't turn up for 40 minutes, because Frank hasn't done enough bad stuff yet to warrant an FBI investigation until that point. Mm. But uh, he gets... He, he's recovered from a French prison at that point and, like a scallywag, fakes his way into a attempted limp escape that he can't really pull off because he's too ill. I also think... And he's still inside a prison. Yeah, I also think it's really important that we see how he's going to end up fairly early on mm-hmm. because it is crucial, absolutely crucial to the way this story plays out that we feel sorry for him. And to do that, we have to know that he's not, he, he doesn't get away with terrible, terrible things. Yeah, um, the, I told Lyra while we were watching it, because she was a little like unsure about what was going on, this is not a film where people suddenly and explosively die in an upsetting ways. And it's also not a film where people suddenly say horrible things to each other. Mm. It's a PG-13, Spielberg is directing, you can rest easy. Yeah. Because it's if it's a film about crime, uh, people might get a little edgy, but it's one of the most beguiling, charming films about crime I've ever seen. Mm. I'll, I'll tell you from the off, I fucking loved this film this time around. <laughs> I haven't seen it look this good since 2002 when I saw it in the cinema, and it clearly didn't even look that good then, or at least my eye wasn't attuned to catching what a beautifully photographed scene was because Yanis Kaminsky in this film just goes to town on just making everything look beautifully lit with this golden almost comforting light 
And it works thematically as well, because the whole point is this is the life that Frank is desperately pursuing because it will get him away from the dull, Mm. cold, leaf-pattern wallpaper apartment life that he is trying to run away from. Also, full disclosure, we skipped over a couple of films to review this. You'll be hearing them in the correct order, but we jumped from Saving Private Ryan across AI and Minority Report, speaking of Tom Cruise, to this one, simply because the end of Saving Private Ryan was so upsetting, I kind of needed to see Tom Hanks okay. Yeah, no, that's understandable. Um, Speaking of it looking fantastic, by the way, I would just like to give a brief nod to the intro sequence, Mm -hmm. which is an animated Frank running away from Carl uh, sequence Mm. done very stylistically and oh my god it's gorgeous and it makes me think of the Pink Panther yeah it's it's got a retro feel to it that, that evokes the 60s and that kind of the sparing iconography that they were just beginning to uh, experiment with in terms of it's minimalist and focused and it has a series of movements to it that draws you in and get you looking at details on the screen which will acclimatize you to the film itself wherein what you're going to see involves a lot of confidence tricks and a lot of sleight of hand verbal and otherwise uh, in terms of going along with the crime rather than us being in the position of the lawman attempting to prevent the crime. It is a Heat-style cat-and-mouse game, but you're with Frank more than you're with Carl, principally because Carl we never see outside the office. He He has absorbed himself so much into this quest to track down Frank Jr. that his home life falls by the wayside that we never see. But that's they could also... easily have had uh, such sections with him and his wife, and his wife was like, you bastard, always on the job. But that didn't happen. But that's crucial to the way their relationship develops as well, because when he eventually comes clean to Frank about what's going on in his home life, there has to be a question mark over whether or not he's telling the truth, and it has to be important to Frank that he is, Mm. because that's one of the ways that they connect. Ultimately, they're as lonely as each other. Yes. And there is a father-son relationship developing there that neither of them really put a hat on, but uh, it's... It's codependent, most definitely, and then that begins from almost uh, the, the the point when they first meet. Mm. Um, okay, so let's go back to the beginning, uh, childhood and learning. What do we know about Frank when we first meet him peeling the label off a wine bottle as his father, Christopher Walken's Frank Sr., is being awarded at the Rotarian Club? Um, he's been brought up in an environment where appearance is really crucial. The whole point of clubs like Rotary Club and, and things like that, where it's about the jacket and the pin and the the respect of the people around you because of this club that you're a part of, rather than being specifically about anything that you've done. When they bring Frank Senior up to recognise his... Uh, his contributions when they the, when they talk about what he does they refer to keeping their pencils sharp and their pens in ink now obviously the point is that they're um, they're respecting his long-term dedication and, and they may well be understating for a reason 
but it's those are really small things. But he's still getting this massive um, respect and admiration for it, and that then immediately followed up by uh, a home life where Frank is admiring the um, the relationship that his parents have. And he's obviously like the story about how they met. He's heard it so many times. He's like a little ki- uh, he's, kid. He's he like, seems you know, t- much younger than he is. Yeah. yeah. As in, he's he's enraptured by the the, the romance of it, as, mm. as you said, just yeah. the, the the almost fairy tale, you know. And that's when I met your mother, and then that, yeah, that with with the dancing he's got. We we get to see how much he invests in these two here, and because of the whole fairy tale aspect, all three of these people are very good at being evasive. Mm. They're very good at not confronting the realities. Absolutely. Even when the realities of the situation rear their ugly head. Yeah, and in in Frank Senior's case, literally evasive, tax evasive, as it turns out, and the and, and because the kind of debt situation and, and situation with the IRS that we then find out he's in does not happen overnight, we know that what whatever it is he's been doing whether it is genuinely because he didn't know any better or whether it's because he's been cooking the books or what it's been going on for a long time mm-hmm. and he's been pretending that everything's fine and now he's at the point of actually having to lie to pretend that everything's fine and pull his son in to lie with him they go to the bank. They try to uh, pull things together. They end up having to sell the car. It doesn't work. Like he, he Frank Senior is nowhere near as fantastic at convincing people as Frank Junior becomes. Uh, it's it's almost like he's learning what not to do while he's uh, watching this happen. And he learns a few tricks that do seem to work. The whole, you know, did you drop this, madam? This uh, um, inexpensive necklace that I uh, picked up, and effectively bribing. Uh, ladies to uh, to help them in this case come into a shop and try on a suit at, you know before hours mm. this leads on to the dissolution of the family as uh, in stage two as his mother it turns out has been <sighs> promiscuous in a way that absolutely defies the fairy tale nature of his view of their relationship well she's been having an affair it would appear that she's been having an affair with uh, one of um, his father's superiors mm-hmm. but that we we don't know anything about the timeline of this and given that he is the man that years down the line we find out she's married and had another child with mm-hmm. it's possible that it's the relationship started to break down because of what was going on with Frank's business uh, issues and this is somebody that she turned to for comfort. We never find out anything about what was going on there. But there was very well no communication that we saw between the two of them. And Absolutely. At the same time, there's this weird sense of denial between both father and son regarding how over they this marriage is yeah. now. And I think you're right about the... Um, the uncertainty regarding how much Frank Senior knew he was cooking the books. It almost feels like he wasn't aware crime was going on until he was, and then he tried to excuse it in himself and kind of 
as you say, lied to himself mm. and kind of sort of got into the habit of overlooking it yeah. to the point where he could almost plead innocence and ignorance of things that were right in front of yeah. him. Yeah, well, it's the, isn't this America? I thought I was allowed to do whatever I wanted in order to succeed and acting hurt and insulted when he finds out that, no, actually, there's laws and um, being ignorant of the laws is not usually a decent excuse. Mm. But I think there's there's also going on with him in the, the little snippets that we find out about... Um, his relationship with Frank's mother and how he responds when further down the line he's going over the story again that he met her in this bar and she was dancing and all the servicemen were, were drawn to her and yet he was the one who got to take her home despite the fact that he didn't even speak French their marriage has been one massive case of imposter syndrome for him he's never really felt like he deserved her Mm. And everything that he's done... Hence the showing her off while they're dancing. Like, hey, it really is me with her. Yeah, absolutely. And I suspect... Almost like going to a high school reunion and trying to convince your uh, um, compatriots from the past. Mm. You know, I succeeded. Yeah. Um, and, And his wanting the big lifestyle, wanting the lavish house, the fancy car... That, I would suspect, is all a part of that as well. And it's it's intriguing to then see how that impacted on my perception of why Frank Jr. was picking up on these things, because he's not... He comes at it from a totally different place. He's not trying to prove he's worth what he's been given. He's just trying to get away from the things that he's overwhelmed by and feels trapped by which I have a lot of sympathy for it also feels like a case of um, since you mentioned I thought this was America the double edged sword of the American dream which is kind of perfect for it to to hit in the uh, early 60s so that um, throughout Frank Senior's passage through adulthood uh, from the 1940s when he was a soldier through to here he's followed what he believed he could achieve Mm only to find that the the foundation's falling away because the the various points on the ladder he didn't fully knit together are now leaving him collapsing. Mm, Yeah, absolutely. Um, It's also, I think... He got so preoccupied with climbing the mountain you forgot to bring a Sherpa and mountain climbing gear. Absolutely, and shoes. The first real fraud, I suppose, that Frank Jr engages in is defensive he turns up at a new school wearing the posh uniform from his old school and is immediately pounced on and and mocked and teased by the the school bullies and a school bully who is uh you know really chunky and pushy and then this eugene like nerd who's like yeah (laughs) right behind him in a kind of i am a remora following in this shark's wake Mm. just to make sure that i won't get pounded myself indeed so frank's response to this is okay this is a french class because my mother is french i can speak french i am going to and then he launches into ned schneebly from school of rock precisely um and it's it seems weird. There's there's not necessarily an immediate gain from this other than to uh, take the wind out of the sails of the people who've been picking mm. on him so far. But then we find out he sustains this for a week. Did he take payments for this uh, field trip to a bread factory in France 
from the parents? I don't know. They, I don't think they mentioned payments, right. but he definitely was talking about organising one and um, mm. uh, giving the kids homework to do. And, and again, it seems like what he launches himself into and what he finds so absorbing about it, it's the being someone else. It's the role-playing aspects of it. The, the financial gain seems to be almost secondary except that it in in the sense that it allows him to play the role of somebody who is able to be generous who is able to be um uh, to to create fun for people and and enjoyment and um it's it, there's all this stuff about when he's interacting with most of the women that he deals with he's flirting in a way that makes them feel good it's not about how it reflects on him it's all about feeding into what other people expect and want and and sort of i mean i've heard this said by uh, con artists many many times not directly but you know what i mean um, <laughs> but the, the i believed you <laughs> the, the, the point of it is that people want to be lied to. They want to have the fantasy for a little while. That they wouldn't they wouldn't engage in it if they didn't if they didn't want to believe what they're being told. Hence the American dream. Uh-huh. This film could have been a lot more scathing than it actually was. Yeah. It comes from the book. Uh, published in 1980, written by Abagnale himself, uh, and apparently it went through director after director until DreamWorks picked it up in 1997. Uh, it was going to go to David Fincher, which would have been very cold. Gore Verbinski. Uh, been very loud. <laughs> uh, Lassie Hellstrom. What's Eating Gilbert Grape and Chocolat and The Cider House Rules. That might have been okay. Um, Milos Forman. Uh, here, Amadeus. That could have... I mean, Amadeus is, is brilliant. I love that. So I think that could have been great as well. And Cameron Crowe. Honestly, of all of them, I would love to see Cameron Crowe's version of this exact same film. Mm. Still with the same cast. I think it would have had a lot of the same beats as Almost Famous. Yeah. You can look forward to a season of Cameron Crowe films next year on our show. Along with James Cameron, it's the year of Cameron. Especially since in England, Ireland and probably Scotland and Wales, we will be Brexiting because of that gutless pig fucker... David Cameron. Truly it will be the year of Cameron. The next stage, uh, after impersonating a teacher, he attempts to cash checks uh, using um, sloppily semi-cunning forgery and keeps getting turned away over and over again because he's just some schmuck in a cardigan. You know those montages where you keep getting a little bit better? This is just a montage of failure upon failure upon failure. Mm -hmm. And it actually seems like he's getting worse and getting tossed out on his ear as he becomes more desperate. But then he notices a pilot suit in the uh, doorway, in the window of a store. And like I said, this is the golden age of flight. And then he sees a pilot getting out of a cab with all of these laughing air hostesses. And just the, the rock star image that they had in those days. It's like so kids are running over to the pilot and asking for their autographs. Can you imagine being in Gatwick Airport right now? Obviously not right now, but pre-COVID, just 2019, and expecting little kids to ask in a hotel for a pilot's autograph. Mm. That is absurd. But in the 60s in America, 
it felt like they're Jaeger pilots. They're suddenly new and important and everyone wants to know about them. Yeah. And so Frank Jr., it'll always be Frank Jr. unless we say Frank Sr. Um, so Frank decides to clothe himself in, in, in that pilot gear and suddenly is conferred this instant respect and admiration and awe. Mm. And um, the ladies suddenly somehow like, oh my God, mm. and Lord a mercy. And he realizes he can grease the wheels by going behind the scenes at Pan Am and posing as Jimmy Olsen and asking for... Uh, I mean, I, I actually think he might have got the idea from Jimmy Olsen since Quite he possibly. is actually a fan of comic books as he wants... He goes by the names of Barry Allen at one point, which is The Flash, and Dr. Connors, which is The Lizard from Spider-Man. Mm-hmm. And just he uses this subterfuge... Which is almost like a, a comic-y... Like, that is a Silver Age Peter Parker thing to do. Mm. You know, the, 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 the imagination of writers is what would kids like? And the idea of being able to fool grown-ups, you know, and do them through the avatars of the, these comic book costumed heroes, even though a lot of the time the heroes are approaching adulthood themselves... It gives kids that that sense of the uh, the, the frisson of like the the early days of the Home Alone kids versus adults mm. way of doing things. Well, he's so he approaches this effectively like a kid posing as an adult. Yeah, and again, it's it's out of a, a form of desperation. By this point, his parents have separated, and he's run away from home. That's why he's desperately trying to cash all those checks. Mm. And what pushes him out of the door is the. The lawyer who is dealing with the separation tells him he has to choose who he's going to live with. And the... To choose that would seal the deal on accepting the divorce. Absolutely, which he can't do in that scenario. So it's like if he runs then and doesn't go home again, then... Home can stay in stasis. It can stay in his memory the way he wants it to be. And when he writes to and speaks to his father, he is referring to a marriage that is no longer in the place it was. Mm, Absolutely. The next stage of his uh, life is daring and success, actually trying to do more with this whole pilot thing. Cashing checks with the... The one touch I absolutely loved was the keeping toy Pan Am planes in the bath in his hotel and then removing the decals from the tail fins and then using them to effectively stamp his checks with. And since this is all based on uh, Abagnale's real book, there is a twinge of authenticity to all of these manoeuvres and it, it, it feels... It's one of those, you know, remarkable stories where people are not horribly killed. And, uh, you know, it's got that kind of compelling nature to it as you, you you know, realise that he is now stretching things. And the whole point is, is like, the, the whole movie from this point becomes a giant piece of taffy that you wonder how long he can stretch before it breaks. Yeah. And again, I think the, it builds a degree of sympathy for Frank by showing us the things that he does that I don't exactly want to say this about crime but it's like who's he hurting what's the capacity on the harm he's really doing here he seems to go out of his way not to do anything that's you know he's not violent he's not 
Um, if he gets challenged or called on anything, he will usually turn around and walk away. He never tries to push anything mm. if, if somebody is backing away from him and, and not believing him. He doesn't have a desperation to win. Yeah, it's not about that. It's Which about... is how he manages to not get caught over and over again. Exactly, but it all again, it comes back to this role-playing thing. It's about how well can he sustain the illusion. Mm. And if the illusion starts to pop, he will run. By the way, incidentally, rest in peace Pan American Airlines, 1927 to 1991. Having several million dollars embezzled from them in the 1960s probably didn't help. Hello. Hi. Are you deadheading? What? Are you my deadhead to Miami? Yes, yes. (laughs) Yeah, I'm your deadhead. Here you go. You're a little late, but the jump seat is open. You know, it's been a while since I've done this. Which one's the jump seat again? (laughs) Have a nice flight. Are you my deadhead? Frank, Captain Oliver, John Larkin, the co-pilot, Fred Tully, flight engineer. Frank Taylor, Pan Am, thanks for giving me a lift, boys. Go ahead and take a seat, Frank. We're about to push. What kind of equipment are you on, DC-8? 707. You turning around on the red eye? Uh, I'm jumping puddles for the next few months trying to earn my keep running leapfrogs for the weak and weary. <laughs> no shame in that. We all did it. Would you like a drink after takeoff? Milk. I'd like a beer, please. Uh, sorry, you gotta be a pilot to drink in here. Uh, but I am a pilot. Where's your uniform? Um, I stowed it safely in the overhead compartment. Well, you talk the talk. Here's a loner. We need a pilot. Prano, who wants to fly to the Windy City? Oh, I'll go. Hey, I'm your man. Conditions are a little windy. You! But I... Hey, you're not just impersonating a pilot so you can drink here, are you? Yeah, that's exactly why I'm here. (laughs) You fly boys, you crack me up. But I keep telling you I'm not a pilot. And I keep telling you, you fly boys, crack me up. Hi, I'm Alan. I'm your co-pilot. Uh, yeah, um... Uh, as a change of pace, I'm going to let you do most of the work. I think you're ready for it, Alan. And um, uh, I'll just uh, get us started. It's around about this time that Carl Hanratty, played by Tom Hanks, is uh, brought in to start the uh, formal investigation to this guy who's uh, sending checks all over the country uh, and while they're bouncing from state to state, living off the uh, proceeds uh, and then is gone before they can, uh, you know, find the person who cashed them. And there's a magnetic scene when they close in on his uh, hotel and... As Hanradi busts into the uh, room alone to uh, find all of these checks in this check-pressing machine, uh, DiCaprio comes out of the uh, bathroom and calmly impersonates uh, LAPD and uh, uh, talks about how they've been investigating this guy for a long time and uh, Hanradi kind of relaxes around him and they talk shop for a while and it's just this... It's conspiratorial. It allows the audience to revel in the fact that Hanratty is being taken for a ride here, and just to see how far Frank can push it. And the um, but there's tension the whole way through because you're like, at some point, Hanratty's going to smell a rat. Mm. It shows how well Frank can think on his feet as well because he's scared. There's a moment where you see 
Um, you get him front on, and Carl is sitting behind him. And he's him, serving himself water. And he's like, and shaking, hands are like, shaking slightly. So you know he knows how on the yeah. edge he is. And there's a gun in the room. Like, Hanradi has a gun, and he's he's trying to act extremely cool and au fait, au fait about it. Uh, but it's... Again, it's this masterful scene. It's it's not entirely Pacino and De Niro meeting for coffee in heat, but it's not a million miles off. I took a typewriter off him a half an hour ago. <laughs> um, but but yeah, that, that from that point onwards, it becomes this chase. And over the course of the film, it seems like Frank develops a attachment to Carl this at least somebody cares about me you know when you are consistently on the move it's fairly natural to cling to what there is in your life that is familiar mm. and Carl is a fixed point indeed and a fixed point that his own father was not able to be for him it's worth noting mm. his dad taught him how to manipulate how to lie um, he didn't give him a, a clear moral line. And when he talks to his dad and, and kind of initially he's bullshitting his dad as much as he is everybody else, mm. and his dad goes along with it. He's I don't showing know. him the razzmatazz of the life that he now leads. Mm. And uh, his dad is actually feeling like awkward. It's, 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 it's like, you know, that he doesn't understand that the salad fork is chilled for a reason. And mm. Wilkins performance during this dinner scene where he basically goes from a man who's kind of trying to fool his son to realizing that his son has kind of got it so much more together than he ever could. Like, you know, he, almost, he actually buys into what Frank's selling. Mm. And he goes from, no, you can't give me a Cadillac to my son bought me a Cadillac. Um, you know, this is uh, in, this calls for a toast. But the amount of stuff that Walken doesn't say in that sequence, the amount of crumbling it's not despair it's this I think it just feels like a sense of I've let you down so hard and I can't even say it or confront it. It, it feels to me like somebody who is clinging to the last shreds of pride they've got Yeah, and Frank to his credit absolutely refuses to let him let go of any of that pride mm. My son the bird man some uniform, Frank. What do you think? Nice. Sit down. <clears throat> Dad, Daddy, have you gotten the postcards? Of course. This fork is ice cold. No, no, Dad, that, that's a chilled salad fork. It's a fancy restaurant, you know. Hey, I got you something. What's that? Open it. The keys to a 1965 Cadillac DeVille convertible. Brand new, Dad. Red with white interior, split seats, air conditioning, the works. You giving me a Cadillac? Yeah, I'm giving you a Cadillac. Dad, she's, she's parked downstairs. When we're done eating lunch, why don't you, you know, drive on over to Mom's house, pick her up, take a little joyride? Do you know what would happen if the IRS found out I was driving around in a new coupe? the train here, Frank. I'm taking the train home. All right. I have plenty of money. 
You know, if you never, ever, ever need anything. You worried about me? No, I'm not, I'm not worried. You think I can't buy my own car? Two mice fell in a bucket of cream, Frank. Which one am I? Yeah, that second mouse. I went by the store today. I had to close the store for a while. It's all about timing, Frank. Goddamn government knows that. They hit you when you're down. I wasn't gonna let them take it from me, so I just shut the doors myself, called their bluff. Sooner or later, they'll forget about me. I understand, right? Have you told Ma? She's so stubborn. Your mother. Don't worry. I'm not gonna let her go without a fight. I'm fighting for us. Dad. Since the day we met. Sitting in that tiny social hall, watching her dance. What was the name of that town? Mont Rashad, Dad. I didn't speak a word of French. Six weeks later, she was my She's your wife. My son bought me a Cadillac today. I think that calls for a toast. There is a real sense of, you know, separated and kind of broken love that uh, connects these, uh, you know, this this family, at least the father and son. The, the mother seems to not be the least bit interested in the son from this point on across the first part of the movie. And then from that point onwards, it's almost like Frank Senior tags in Carl to become the father figure who's trying to... Like there's there's no direct acknowledgement of that, but narratively, Carl becomes the guy trying to get Frank to come back to the world. Mm. But this is why, and you know, he is a absolutely respected director. But Fincher could not have had the same type of movie at all. Mm. It would have been a lot more like Zodiac. Drafting. He even has little payroll envelopes addressed to himself. From Put it down. Drop it. Relax. You're late. All right. My name is Alan Barry Allen, United States Secret Service. Your boy just tried to jump out the window. My partner has him in custody. I don't know what you're talking about. What, you think the FBI are the only ones on this guy? I mean, come on, come on. He's dabbling in government checks here. I've been following a paper trail on this guy for months now. Hey, you, you mind taking that gun out of my face, please? Really. I mean, it makes me nervous. You see some credentials. Yeah, sure. Take my whole wallet. <clears throat> you want my gun, too? Come over here, take my gun. Hey, hey, look, just do me a favor. Take a look outside. Look, look out the window. My partner's walking him to the car as we speak. Look. Old guy almost pissed in his pants when I came through the door. He jumped right through the window onto the hood of my car. Hey, Murph. Yeah, call the LAPD again. I don't want people walking through my crime scene. I didn't expect the Secret Service on this. Don't worry about it. <clears throat> well, what's your name? Henry. Carl Henry. 
Mind if I see some identification? Sure. You, know, you never can be too careful these days. Well, tough luck, Carl. Five minutes earlier, you would have landed yourself a pretty good collar. It's all right. Ten seconds later, and you'd have been shot. Mind if I come downstairs with you? I, I got to take a look at this guy. Sure thing. Just uh, do me a favor and sit tight for a second while I get this evidence downstairs. You know, I don't want some maid walking through here and making the bed. LAPD should be here any sec. Wait. Your wallet. You hang on to it for a minute. I trust you. At this point, Frank changes course and he stops trying to be a, uh, a airline pilot because uh, the feds are closing in and he bluffs his way into becoming a doctor and meets uh, Amy Adams, uh, who plays Brenda, a young hospital worker who, when he meets her, has this great big mouth full of braces. And she's Amy Adams, who is incapable of artifice. And it just resonates out of her, this shining kind of, not only am I so transparent that I can't ever tell a lie, but you will see all over my face that I am saying and projecting everything I'm thinking, which is going to be very straightforward and very passionate. And I feel like something about Brenda really appeals to Frank on a, on a level that he can't even articulate or understand why. So he kind of schmoozes his way in as a doctor, Dr. Connors, and then connects with her romantically after she gets rid of the braces. And, and we've jumped and skipped over a lot of times that Frank bedded various swooning maidens that he's uh, charmed and there uh, it would have been very easy for another director or even for this director to make him come off as a sleaze bag how is it that he's able to lie to so many trusting women and bed them and doesn't come off as a creep because i'm sure he does come off as a creep to some people but that's not the intention from spielberg it's very difficult to pinpoint it and it's going to be different for everybody but I think for me what makes it and it's it's weird to think about it because in some of the scenarios that we see he's only 17 mm -hmm. technically speaking in some places first, he's a felon that first stewardess mm -hmm. no 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 he's not she is uh, sorry yeah no absolutely right I was so, Monica and uh, young Ethan in yeah. uh, Friends. Mm. But the, uh, the, the way that his relationships seem to progress, I mean, I, d I doubt very much that anybody hearing the facts of the case would, would consider it so, because he's gone so far out of his way to convince them that he is a lot older than he mm. actually is. But there's a... It's almost like there's there's no guile to him when he's actually with them. Mm -hmm. He is what we were saying before about you can you can tell in uh, DiCaprio's performance when he's playing the fake and when he's playing the real. Mm -hmm. And it seems like there are a handful of moments when he's with someone else where he really is genuine, and that makes it feel a lot less creepy than it could do. Mm. And also, what's he really doing to them? Again, 
what's the harm that's being caused? He's yes, he's leading them on and, and telling them things that aren't true. But up until the point where he makes meets Brenda, if we discount the one instance where he rips off Jennifer Garner's call girl to the tune of $400. That's different. The call girl scenario, she turns up like outside his room and effectively solicits a, uh, a night from him, uh, to which she will charge $1,000 in mid-1960s dollars. And that's a lot. So he, through kind of cunning, allows her to say, well, you give me that cashier's check and I will give you change. And so he ends up $400 extra in pocket and she ends up with a useless check. Uh, So that's more like she's hustling him and he's hustling her back. Mm. But the hustle and the dual hustle also is... They're imbued with fantasy in terms of he's dressed like James Bond because mm. he's been watching Goldfinger yeah. and driving around an Aston Martin DB5. And she's wearing an Audrey Hepburn movie. Yeah, she wants to be Audrey Hepburn, he wants to be James Bond. They're both kind of just negotiating their way into those roles and I'm sure both of them had a, a, a ruddy good time that night. Um, but that's pretty much the same with the air hostesses. They're indulging in the fantasy of bedding a, a, a rock star air pilot, mm-hmm. and he's indulging in the fantasy of bedding an air hostess. Mm-hmm. And both of them go away pretty like, you know, he knows the truth, but as far as she's concerned, she never has to know any different. Mm-hmm. It's sleazy, especially when you put it down on paper. He is, you know, pretending to be a airline uh, pilot, and if he was played by Michael Shannon, obviously it's much it would worse. Be a horrendous situation, indeed. Kind of like what we were watching the other day. When I was like, if you switch this, oh yeah, it was while you were sleeping. Yeah. If you switch Sandra, Sandra Bullock, Bullock in Michael while you were Shannon. sleeping for Michael Shannon, <laughs> and still keep Peter Gallagher and mm. still keep Bill Pullman, yeah. Then suddenly the movie is is creep central, but it's yeah. because Sandra Bullock. Is is so earnest and so sweet and we get that story about her father and and she keeps trying to back out of it all the time Mm. but you know if she was played by Michael Shannon he's like oh I was going to marry that guy and then a nurse overhears and she's like he's Peter Gallagher's fiance and then the whole film plays out with that I'm sure the family would have been a little more uh, a little more reticent at uh, taking uh, this enormous seven-foot creepy man in as as a, uh, as a surrogate son, but uh, yeah, but that's the thing. Like it's it's Leo DiCaprio, and if you asked the average uh, young lady in in the year two thousand and two, would you spend a romantic night with Leo DiCaprio if he told you his name was Craig? <laughs> They'd probably go, yes. I think, I think essentially what it comes down to is that the, the, the entanglements that he gets into prior to Brenda do not seem to be... They're not emotionally investing. They're not affairs invest- of the heart. Exactly. Yeah, no. they're, they're not emotionally investing in a way that they're then being led on. They're Brenda fantasy is the, shags. Brenda is the first person who is all in authentically and and falling for him mm. and he seems to be falling for her in return she invests in him and yeah. she this next bit's heavy she confides in him that she had an abortion and her parents took care of her during it and then threw her out because they're lutherans and they can't abide such things and he says, what if you were to marry a doctor would they take you back then and it's really hard to hate him at that point because 
you are getting yourself in way over your head mm. and there's no obvious financial gain exactly here he's doing point. it for her there's there, there doesn't seem to be much that he can get out of this to me it seems like what's cementing his Especially uh, as she's like, I'm so sorry, I'm so sorry. And she's like holding herself and bunched up and crying like a child who feels her that she's dirty and ruined well, because, because she's been cast away like a Jezebel. Absolutely. The only experience that she has of people's response to this situation is shame. Yeah. So, of course, she's going to feel all that all over again. Ergo, we warm to him greatly at yeah. this stage. And, and he's ultimately, he is putting himself at risk at this point. Doing the pilot thing, hmm. he was constantly on the move. And you can point to that and point to the checks and go, well, it's obvious why you're doing this. Yeah. Financial but, gain and a crazy playboy lifestyle. Yeah, indeed. But to, to settle down, inverted commas, as Dr. Connors, he's got an office with his name on the door. He's got somewhere that he has to show up for work every day. He's a lizard. There's, <laughs> there's occasions when he actually is called upon to do medical stuff and he has to talk his way out of that. Well, he doesn't so much talk his way out of that. You said he, um, we had to actually skip over it because we were eating dinner at that point and it was like a sudden really bloody scary moment because a child had been injured and he was called to attend uh, but he got through and again we're going to have to trust his account uh, by asking the professionals around him what would you do in this situation yes you're right mm. Exactly. Yeah. So he's applying his confidence to the situation. Also to ensure that no mis uh, mismanaged medical work yeah. gets carried out he that hurts people. Yeah, he doesn't throw in a oh I, I totally know what I'm doing. Mm-hmm. And that's the thing as well. He he seems to know his limits. Mm-hmm. He's when he uh, starts trying to convince everybody that he's a doctor. Yes, all right, he's reading medical encyclopedias, but he's also reading Dr. Kildare and watching episodes of whatever hospital soap was was on at the time. Days he's of our not, lives. Yeah. He's not trying he's to convince He's watching Drake Ramore intently. <laughs> he's not trying to convince people that he is actually... Um, well, no, he is trying to convince people that he's medical, medically qualified. What's the way to phrase this? He's not... He's not trying to pass off what he can do. Um, it's about being an actor. It's about, again, it's performing the role and sustaining that role. And Almost everybody he meets throughout this film responds best to a state of authority. And he is very good at reaching that point of authority and being slightly aloof with it. Mm. And whenever they ask him searching questions he's very good with the flip remarks that don't dismiss what they have to say but kind of reassure them in a way that's like you know I've got this mm, yeah and by this point by the way by the time this all starts to kick off with um, with having to meet Brenda's family he's made direct contact with Hanratty he's called him and talked to him deliberately and like John Doe exactly and Carl calls him on it and he says you didn't have anybody else to call did you and he's hitting the point and this Specifically, it's at Christmas at that point, exactly. and he's feeling extra lonely, as yeah. people do, sadly, at Christmas time. And um, and I, I said this to Lyra: it's there's that feeling that when you spend your life being someone else, there comes a point where you just want to talk to somebody who knows who you really are. And I think his relationship with Brenda is kind of developing out of that need as well, because they are fairly close in age; they have similar experiences in terms of. Um, like the, having recently gone through high school, and um, he he actually when the, when the 
shit hits the fan and, and Carl turns up at the engagement party and he has to run, he tells Brenda who he really is. Notably, just before then, he had actually, when he's got to talk to Martin Sheen, and that made me think, oh God, Martin Sheen's being positioned as a Lutheran who would toss his previously pregnant daughter out on her ear for being a whore of Babylon. I'm like, oh Christ, because they can't think Bartlett into that position. I it just feels wrong. But the it's it's worth noting that I I suspect their issue with the whole situation was we can't possibly marry her to some respectable boy now. And that's why that's what gives Frank the idea that if he turns up as a doctor who is willing to marry her, that will make all of that go away. If you used a neutron microscope, you could not locate one shred of understanding or forgiveness for families who do that to their daughters. Okay. That's fair enough. In me. That's fine. Uh-uh, uh-uh. No, no, you don't apologize to me. Do you always work on Christmas Eve, Carl? I volunteered. Something with families could go home early. Looked like you were wearing a wedding ring out in Los Angeles. I thought maybe you had a family. No, no family. You want to talk to me? Let's talk face-to-face. All right. I have my suite at the Stuyvesant Arms, room 3113. In the morning, I leave for Las Vegas for the weekend. You think you're gonna get me again? You're not going to Vegas. You're not in the Stuyvesant Arms. You'd love for me to send out 20 agents Christmas Eve, barge into your hotel, knock down the door so you can make fools out of us all. I'm really sorry if I made a fool out of you. I really am. Uh, no. No, listen, no, I no. really am. I you, you do not feel sorry for me. The truth is, I knew it was you. Now, maybe I didn't get the cuffs on you, but I knew. People only know what you tell them, Carl. Well, then tell me this, Barry Allen Secret Service. How did you know I wouldn't look in your wallet? The same reason the Yankees always win. Nobody can keep their eyes off the pinstripes. The Yankees win because they have Mickey Mantle. No one ever bets on the uniform. (sighs) You sure about that, Carl? I'll tell you what I am sure of. You're gonna get caught. One way or another, it's a mathematical fact. It's, it's like Vegas. The house always wins. Well, Carl, I'm sorry, but I, I have to go. Uh, you didn't call just to apologize, did you? <laughs> what do you mean? <laughs> you, you, you have no one else to call. <laughs> Well, when put on the spot uh, by uh, Martin Sheen, uh, who seems very, who's a lawyer and is very hypercritical and, uh, uh, you know, seems shrewd, it feels like Frank almost gives the gives up the ghost and, and just says, I'm not a doctor, I'm not a pilot, I'm none of these things. I am just a young kid who's in love with your daughter, which in the vein of all comedy scenarios is that is that same kind of, you know, I keep telling you I'm not a pilot and I keep telling you, you flyboys crack me up. It's like you, Martin Blank in uh, Ghost Point Blank. Professional killer. Get done with that. When you actually tell the truth, people don't believe you 
And in this one weird situation, this was the time for him not to lie. And Martin Sheen goes, come to me, sonny boy. (laughs) And then he takes a state bar exam. Mm. But yeah, this is um, a a point where he's actually changed course and he's looking for something different in his life. And that love that he felt with uh, uh, Brenda feels real. And it's sad that she kind of gets wrenched out of the story because then Hanrad, he's trying to use her as a plant to um, uh, to flush Frank out at Miami Airport as uh, Frank wants to leave with her, but then notices that the whole place is being staked out by flowers by Ira. I asked, why didn't he just drive to Florida and fly out of there instead? He just drive out of, fly out of Orlando and you said rather pointedly... Because Orlando International Airport didn't exist at this point. It wasn't opened until 1981. Yeah, it would take about another 14 years to uh, to turn up. And he'd have to drive to... I, I, I don't know. I don't think we worked out where the next nearest international airport oh, was. Oh, you said Jacksonville. Jackson, there's, there was an airport at Jacksonville, but um, it was mostly military at that mm. point. Fundamentally, there wouldn't have been that many international airports in America at this stage. It's probably worth noting that this scene at Miami International Airport and the New York scenes are some of the most dazzling in terms of really convincing you that you're looking at the 60s. The set design and production design and the the costumes and the colours and all... Just to, just the way that the actual... Um, that the camera falls upon the colours. I, I feel like they, they evoked Goldfinger for a reason because it, it feels like we're looking at a film from that age but just with shot with a much better camera. It's wholly convincing and when you see these big wide shots it's just kind of dazzling and, and it's like, well, that's Spielberg. He just goes that extra mile to really sell you this world. And... He ends up managing to get through Miami Airport by getting getting himself a shadow bank and contingent of uh, wannabe starlet air hostesses, you know, picked up from the local high school college. High school college, a bunch of girls who are just like, do they fly with him in the end, or do they just guard him through the they place just, and then he, he scoots onto them, a plane? Yeah, he just uses mm. them as a as a front to get into the airport past the FBI guys. and flies to France. But that's the last we see of Brenda, or even hear of Brenda. Yeah, did he actually marry her? Because I... she was getting a lot of like envelopes full of money, and it feels like this is a post wedding party rather than a pre wedding. No, party. no, no, it was an engagement party. Oh, an engagement party. Okay, so he didn't marry her. No, but. When he talks to her in the uh, bedroom, and there's a really sweet moment where he pulls down a, a case from above the bed and yanks it open, and it's just full of money. And then he pulls some clothes from a drawer because he's trying to run out the uh, the window because Hanradi's climbing the stairs at this point. It's super tense and almost Hitchcocky at this stage. And he throws bunches of money out to one side and puts the clothes in. Obviously, the clothes are worth you know, a fraction of how much money he's just tossed out. But if he just moves with the money, who even is he? He has to keep hold of something. And then he pulls down a second case that's again chock full of money and just leaves money sort of scattering around the room, sort of gives it to her and just... It doesn't mean anything to him anymore. He's stolen so much that it's just... A way, like it's compulsion now. Yeah, yeah. No, I agree with that. And and it's another little touch as well is that as he's on the way out the window, mm. he takes 
money from his pocket yeah. to give to her for the taxi that he's telling her to catch to the airport mm. to meet him, even though There's there are bills the scattered all over the bed and all over yeah. the room. But it, the point is, he has to know that that money went from mm. his hand to hers. And this is another instance of him talking to her and telling her he really does love her, he really does want her to go with him, mm. and it feels like the truth. And it does not... There's no artifice there. There's desperation because he knows he is this close to being caught. But again, it feels like we're seeing the real Frank yeah. and he's sort of straining. And there's another element to that as well, which is the fact that when he realises that they're staking out Miami Airport and he's got to do something to get past them, mm. uh, he goes back to a tried and tested method that he used a long time ago because he's scared. He's backed into a corner and so he's grabbing at patterns that are set. He's, he doesn't come up with something new. He goes back to what he's done before. Mm. And Hanratty theorised that it was uh, he didn't actually have to leave directly from Miami, um, but that he just seemed to be doing it to goad this this guy who's. Uh, he, I mean, he could feasibly have rented a car and driven to somewhere. The smart were... thing to do would be to go to any other airport that was not being staked out for him directly. Absolutely. It does leave a paper trail. It does leave a lot of motels that you'd have to then, mm. like, clear signs of yourself from being at. A lot of gas stations. Mm. You know, it's it's difficult to move yourself and two suitcases full of money across the country. Yeah, it is. Uh, but. He could have done that. It does feel, though, that he went for the audacious plan and then rubbed it in Hanratty's face. Yes, and that's certainly Hanratty's theory, that mm. he's he's doing it because he's there and he wants to effectively dare him. Even to down to getting a body double put in place. Mm. Mm. But now um, Hanratty really does seem to be uh, uh, feeling personally responsible for him. He's, he's sort of slotted into this father figure role. And, uh, you know, we've already kind of crossed through the, uh, the section where he's running in desperate. Um, but then he finds him in France and Hanratty has to kind of turn things on him by, uh, by telling him that there's French police outside who are going to shoot him. And he's like, no, 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 you're pulling an angle on me. And it almost doesn't matter at this point that Hanratty is or is not making this up. They're both kind of so bogged down with the, the layers of artifice that it's almost like uh, Frank can't really engage with reality anymore. Yeah, and he's he is something's slipping. It's not his skill because he's he continues to counterfeit while he's in France. But he's gone back to Montrachard, which is the place where his mother and father met. Mm -hmm. Again, that shows he's desperate. He's not thinking of new things he's going he's reaching for familiarity he's trying to clutch at things he knows because he is starting at this point to lose his grip on who he is and Hanratty himself uh, it seems to have like he doesn't seem to be particularly beloved by the men everyone seems to see him as kind of a stickler it's almost like he his um He's built his life now uh, of, in recent years around just trying to get Frank in, which is, again, why he sort of falls into this fatherly figure uh, for him. Because he... It's not really because of his obsession. It's... Or is it? I mean, would you say that this is obsession? Um, I don't think so. I mean, ultimately, it's... Uh, it, he, he lets him slip through his fingers back at the hotel where he impersonates the FBI uh, or the, the law enforcement person mm. 
And it's hinted at that anybody else in that situation would feel humiliated because they the person that they were pursuing got something over on them. I never really get the impression that that's how Hanratty feels. It's more about the fact that he is very dedicated to doing his job right. He's all about the figures. He's all about the knowledge. Um, he, the, the, I think he says something to Frank about me catching you is a mathematical certainty. It will happen. And, and that seems to be his, his MO. It's, this is just something that he can see the line of it so clearly he can't not follow it. Does that make sense? Yeah. It's also almost like um, had Frank not reached out to him and made that phone call at that Christmas, the two, I kind of, I suppose, like strengthen their bond. It's almost like uh, Hanratty might have faded away and found something else to do with his career. Yeah, possibly so. But it almost feels like that made him feel more personally responsible. There's also that I'm... revelation of you don't have anyone else to talk to. Yeah, I also suspect that there is a little bit of professional respect involved at the point where well he's a fascinating case if nothing else well indeed but when when Hanratty knows so much about frauds and forgeries and that kind of thing to to be up against somebody who is so good with it that it's incredibly difficult for him to to catch him Mm. then that would engage him on a on a level that possibly nothing else ever has before. So not necessarily that it's obsession, but that it's so engaging for him that he can't let it go. And also, when we get to the point where he's uh, asking Frank to identify fraudulent checks and why they're fraudulent, there is a look on his face that's almost paternal pride. When he um, manages to convince him to come outside uh, to uh, await the not-giant crowd of uh, gun-toting French police, uh, some French police do in fact turn up to drag him away to a uh, wet, cold French prison. The uh, officer who actually arrests him is the real-life Frank Abagnale Mm -hmm. uh, Jr., which is a neat touch. And uh, he was a consultant for this film, Mm -hmm. uh, which... Kind of plays into the, uh, the the final act of the, uh, the the story here. When they're flying home, and Hanratty tells him that his father, Christopher Walken's Frank Senior, has died accidentally falling down some stairs at Grand Central Station. DiCaprio is really good at being upset in a way that draws the audience in, and rushes to the. Uh, um, Bathroom. Well, first off, like cries by the uh, plane window, and then rushes to the the bathroom, and then we are trapped in there in this up, you know, top down view of an airplane bathroom, and you really start to get the sense that he is feeling like hemmed in and caged, and he's just come from a French prison. His lips are still chapped and 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 dried out. His eyes are still bloodshot. His teeth are fucked, and uh, yeah, his hair's all long and nappy. Like he's already suffered. And he can expect more of the same when he gets back to America. But he escapes through the toilet. It it doesn't seem to be just fear of a cage, but 
something else is drawing him back. Like, he could just escape and run anywhere at this stage, but he goes to the place that Hanratty knows he will be, and then they apprehend him shortly afterwards, his family home, where he sees his mother, and it's Christmas Eve, and it's snowing, and he's at the window, and then he sees Jack, his father's former associate, and now his father is gone from the world and he is looking at this idyllic family setting that he always dreamed he was part of before he ran away from home and then the little girl comes to the window and it's you know wonderful visual storytelling you know you just what's your name where's your mummy and like Spielberg makes no bones about the fact he is looking at his half-sister and he's this ghost at the feast just out in the window out in the cold with this disheveled appearance as the police turn up to drag him away to a solitary cell. It's this... He never wanted, really, the... You know, he, he, he was never in this family wishing for riches and a, a playboy lifestyle. He just wanted this. And the film kind of, like, never really made any illusions any other, uh, other way. There, there was no sense that he was pursuing a false a false ideal and a false lifestyle that didn't make him happy. He just did that out of compulsion because he could. But it feels like he would have dropped it in a heartbeat if he'd been told, right, if you stop right now, your mom and dad will get back together again. Mm. And you can go home. And he tries. He goes when he knows he can't go back to his dad now because his dad's gone. He goes back to his mom and finds out that he has a half-sister. She's moved on. Yeah. She moved on years ago. And that's when he turns back to Carl and says, okay, I'm done. everything's, all, all the avenues of familiarity are now closed off to me. You're the only person left that I know. And this is the moment of surrender. Absolutely key point in the uh, story. And he's caught and defeated in this next stage is cruel and quick. Unfortunately, we could Spielberg could have, have uh, uh, taken less time on other places and really dwelled on What's, his incarceration. What four years? Yeah. before they managed to move on to the next bit. And you know, you could just go four years, or you could really make us feel it mm. and just watch him slowly get beaten down by solitary. And you said they don't even uh, allow people to be kept in solitary the, like this for this yeah, long the, anymore. He's, he's sentenced to 12 years. The judge recommends that he's kept in isolation for those 12 years, but it seems apparent that that doesn't happen. Um, but yeah, that's, that's not something that I believe mm. they're allowed to do anymore unless somebody is directly dangerous. It does come off as a system that is unaware or unwilling to search for a way to deal with this man that they can't control. There's a seemingly like a desperation to just put him somewhere where he can't cause any more trouble because to allow him to interact with people allows him to gain their confidence and to trick them. Mm. And it's almost like admission that there aren't enough people in the system that are wily enough to outwit him. But also to say that and to think that he is still going to be motivated to try and lie and manipulate his way out of things mm. means that they don't know why he did it in the first place. They're going purely on behaviour. She already left me once. 
I think she'd do it again exactly just for kicks. Exactly what I was thinking, yes. <laughs> yes. No, 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 there is no problem. We're coming out right now. <laughs> well, that was good. That was good. What did you, you pay some hotel desk clerk to make that call for you? Is that what you did? It's Captain Luke. I've got one minute to bring Captain you out. Captain Luke? Captain Luke? Ooh, Captain Luke. Well, Carl, I gotta say that, that sounds pretty official to me, but like I said, I, I think it's just me and you here. So you're gonna have to catch me. Frank, Frank, you have to trust me on this. These people have been embarrassed, Frank. They're angry. You rob their banks, you steal their money, you live in their country. I told you this was what was going to happen. That there was no other way for it to end. Don't make a mistake. That's good. That's good, Carl, you know? Keep pushing that lie. Keep pushing it. Keep pushing till you make it true. They're gonna kill you! You walk out that door, they're gonna kill you. Is that the truth? Yeah. You have any children, Carl? I have a four-year-old daughter. You swear on your daughter? You swear? You swear. And then there's the offer of salvation, uh, stage 10, when he's asked by the government, led by Hanratty, uh, can you identify what's wrong with this forged check? And uh, starts to help out the very people that he'd been hoodwinking for uh, all of these years. And it's a, it's a wonderful kind of end to the story because it's like you can use your superpowers for good but then Spielberg yanks the rug out from under you because like anyone else would just go yeah isn't that great but Spielberg's like nah it's not that simple there's this little extra shelf that he has to climb over and uh, that's the temptation to pack all of this in like he has his first week and he's kind of bewildered with um, a life of going straight and playing for the other side and he's he's si- also likely to be mildly institutionalised oh, yeah. after four years in prison. A little bit crazy and, uh, you know, has to uh, ask for permission to go to the bathroom. Um, but he sees the uh, pilot's uh, outfit in the uh, window again. And now it's the 70s and everyone everything looks like Serpico. And he's uh, you know, wearing a, a, a brown and orange, a beige and mac orange. and a black turtleneck. And, um, you know, things have moved on. And, and his, the world that he uh, had dominion over has passed, people are no longer going to be as blown away by him being a pilot anymore. So, but the important thing is that he suffers the temptation at this stage and he buys the uniform and goes to the airport and in this wonderful set, this ramp to get to the uh, the airside planes, uh, he's walking up dressed as a pilot just ready to go on the run on the weekend while Hanratty's supposed to be uh, travelling to see his daughter and um, Carl turns up behind him he's like where are you going son it's it's a wonderful little exchange and um, Frank's just kind of on the edge and on the cusp he doesn't have the desperation anymore but it's well 
you were about to mention it earlier. Do you want to uh, um, elaborate on that scene here? He's on his way up the ramp to flee and Carl turns up and confronts him with the fact that he doesn't need to run because nobody is chasing him and he's not going to chase him. But this is the only open acknowledgement, and it's tiny, of the paternal relationship that's going on there. Because Carl says something to him about, um, you're just a kid. And Frank says, I'm not your kid. And there's a, there's almost a pleading in the way he says it. And it's it's that same tone that um, it's almost like I don't know quite what the phrasing would be for it, but you know that I didn't ask to be born when kids are desperate for reassurance that they are loved and they are cared for. Again, he wants that fixed point. Yeah. He wants a rock to cling to. He yeah. wants something that actually means. He doesn't have to go flying off. Mm. And in a, and Carl refuses to give it to him at that point. Mm. He says, I'm not going to come after you because I, I believe that you will turn up on Monday morning. You have to come to me. Yeah. And then cut to Monday morning and it's ten past ten and he hasn't shown up yet and he hasn't called in. And, and Carl to, is starting Tom to Hanks get is worried. standing in the middle of the floor looking up at the clock in that way that Tom Hanks does. And yeah. I, I'm beginning to appreciate in my uh, middle age quite what an amazing amount of films and performances Hanks has turned in over the years like I always liked him from a young age but just this guy's range and he's always Tom Hanks but there's always just a little different edge to him he's multifaceted Yeah, but Lyra was really worried at this point she was like uh, you know when they do the fake out where somebody mm. comes running up the corridor and you're thinking it's him it's him and then he opens the door and it's not and she was like oh which is why it was okay for them to show their hand at the beginning and say, well, he's in this French prison, so he was caught. Mm. Because it's not actually the end. In fact, it's four and a bit years from the end. Indeed. And then what happens at the end? He... He? Frank. Yeah. Turns up. And Carl is trying to identify the finer points of a very, very clever forgery... And Frank can't walk away from the challenge mm-hmm. and is able to tell him how it's being done. And then it does that thing where uh, we get text telling us what then happened in the intervening 30 or so years. Mm. And uh, as it, it turns out, the uh, amount of time that uh, uh, Frank had uh, spent getting very well acquainted with forgery uh, allowed him to become the kind of expert that gets paid ironic millions of dollars by the companies who uh, want to guard against the kind of people that he was. And again, this is an extension of, of how it began, the, uh, the whole, you know, you, uh, how, how the uh, offer of you can have your own new life using what you've learned to better yourself how do you tend to better yourselves? Better ourselves? You heard what he said? Better ourselves? Mr. When you from Skid Row, ain't no such thing. Little Shop of Horrors 
hashtag SOM21. To achieve the American dream, it's a twisted-ass way of achieving it. But he did so by immersing himself in the fantasy, learning the ropes of that uh, noodling road through playing a version of himself for everyone that he met. And he's the kind of criminal that um, you know people can go, oh, isn't that sweet? He's paid his debt to society. And it's kind of perfect that uh, Spielberg be the one to sort of convey and deliver that story to the world because uh, it legitimizes that life in a way that other directors might have left you feeling more uneasy about him. So, yeah, um, what, what, what are the, the, the absolute strengths of this film that you're going to take away? Because this is high on my list. I mm. ranked all the Spielbergs that we've seen so far. For me, I think it comes down to the performances and, like you said, the cinematography. It it looks gorgeous, and there's a there's a believability about the timing, as in like the era. It feels kind, hmm. and we have just come off the back of a number oh, yeah. of Spielberg films that are not. They're not, not filled kind. with an overabundance of kindness. They yeah. are filled with an overabundance of violence and pain. Absolutely. And generally speaking, I don't like crime films hmm. because Me there neither. is. I tend a to lack find criminals kindness. boring by mm. default because, like, by and large, if they're. Um, what they do to date from the uh, uh, crime films and crime TV I've seen doesn't tend to engage me, mm. and who they are, by and large, from the same materials, doesn't engage me. Yeah. In this case, both engaged me greatly. Mm. I think it's also driven by an earnestness, which, again, is one of those things that I found captivating. You very rarely get earnest criminals, and mm. if you did, I'd be all ears. Yeah. Well, there, there doesn't tend to be a creativity in it, especially in... Um, modern, like, police procedurals and, and crime shows and stuff like that, where it's like the violence is the mm. point. So, well, all right, so they solve everything by bopping somebody on the head or shooting them. That's not interesting. Cut their kneecaps off and stuff them into a suitcase. But, yeah, the other thing is that you know, it, most crime hurts people. Mm. And in this case, the film is quite glib regarding the repercussions of uh, who he's stealing from. It doesn't mm. really show the people who might lose their jobs yeah. or you know, end up really in, in, in hot water as a result of uh, yeah, I'm willing to millions get, of dollars way, that he's embezzled. Elizabeth Banks would have got hauled over the coals massively for bringing him behind, behind the counter in a bank. the bank she worked at and showing him all the security features. What the hell, girl? She's like, oh, if you look here at this check right here, oh, I moved it, you touched my boob. <laughs> I know you're new, but surely one of the first things they teach you is, like, don't tell people things about how they can rip us off. Guess why? <laughs> I love Elizabeth Banks and I love the fact that she basically behaves here exactly the way she does in The 40-Year-Old Virgin uh, kind of like going into flirty gear in a kind of oh, okay mister you seem interesting and giggling it's um she's yeah I just love just seeing just time Elizabeth jumped Banks. for the 60s yeah <laughs> Uh, so, yeah, ultimately, I think the, the thing that really powers this through is the sense of connection between people who 
you would not imagine would stay connected. You would imagine there'd be a lot more bitterness between the family, the the father and the son, and then the uh, the the agent and the 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 criminal. Like that, there's all of these other versions of this story where it's just kind of poisoned, mm. and somehow it manages to retain a purity and. Uh, Almost a wistfulness. Yeah, and I don't doubt that a big part of that is probably um, Spielberg. Spielberg rinsing some of the slightly seedier, seedier elements of uh, Frank Abagnale's. Hmm. Well, we don't have to ha- show past. that scene. Let's yeah. just uh, move on. That's <laughs> uh, yeah. Uh, it's uh, it's very high up my list, and I'm so glad I got this on Blu-ray. I've had this on DVD for several years, watched it once, I think, and was like, yeah, this is a good film. But it just unlocked in HD. Mm. Yeah. How do you do it, Frank? What did you pass the bar in Louisiana? What are you doing here? Listen. I'm sorry I put you through all this. You go back to Europe, you're going to die in Pepignan prison. Try to run here in the States. We'll send you back to Atlanta for 50 years. I know that. I spent four years trying to arrange your release. Had to convince my bosses at the FBI and the Attorney General of the United States you wouldn't run. Why'd you do it? You're just a kid. I'm not your kid. You said you were going to Chicago. My daughter can't see me this weekend. She's going skiing. Said she was four years old. You're lying. She was four when I left. Now she's 15. My wife's been remarried for 11 years. I see Grace every now and again. I don't understand. Sure you do. Sometimes it's easier living the lie. I'm going to let you fly tonight, Frank. I'm even going to try to stop you. Because I know you'll be back on Monday. Yeah. How do you know I'll come back? Look. Frank. Nobody's chasing you. School of Movies is funded by Patreon. And every week we give our top tier $15 patrons a little shout out and a virtual high five. So thank you to Aaron Lecluse, Abel Savard, Alex Outridge, Alex Peregrine, Angus Lee, Benjamin Hoffer. Brian Novak, Cassandra Newman, Chris Finnick, Christopher Wolfe, Kieran Dashler, Connor Kennedy, Dan Mayer, Dan Hepner, Daniel Salguero, Dave Hickman, Dave Sheely, Duran Barnett, Evan Jankowski, Finbar Nicole, Greg Downing, Jameis Enright, Joe Gasiga, Joe Crow, Joel Robinson, Johan Clayson, Joseph Gluck, Kat Esman, Kevin Veyi, Lorraine Chisholm, Mark Luksch, Matthew A. Siebert, Matthew Webb, Michael Hasco, Scott Jacob, Sarah Montgomery, Tim Rosensky, Timothy Green, Toby Jungius, Trey Contreras, and Tom Painter. And next week we've got a Steven Spielberg film a lot of you have been waiting to hear our thoughts on, Indiana Jones and the Kingdom of the Crystal Skull. And it's going to be a grand reunion of everyone we've had on for the previous three Indiana Jones shows. And I personally think this might be our best of the four. Not the best film, but the best show. We shall all see next week. And remember, if you're at the $5 level or higher on Patreon, 
you can catch our quick reviews on the rest of Spielberg's lineup for the 2000s. The Terminal, Munich, Warhorse, Lincoln, Bridge of Spies, and The Post. So yeah, that's Catch Me If You Can. I've been Alex Shaw. I've been Sharon Shaw. And School's Out. Mm-hmm.